Vincenzo Vinciquera la proposta fatta a me di partecipare all'operazione di Frida. The suggestion that was put to me to help Frida escape from jail in the autumn of 1973 came from the security forces linked to the Ministry of the Interior. This is proof that they were giving him cover. It was one of the few cases where officials of the military secret services have been tried, namely General Maletti, the Captain Labruna. They were both convicted for aiding and abetting the militant group of Frida and Ventura. Franco Freda. I went away from Catanzaro, which was the town where I was obliged to live. I didn't run away for your information. As far as Ventura is concerned, we left Italy at different times with different means and different help. What help? Help from friends. Judge Gerardo Ambroso. At that moment, we had Guinatini in for questioning. We were paying attention to the role played by him in this affair. We had also discovered that Giannatini was one of those who believed in the so-called Revolutionary War. He had spoken of it at a conference. This conference had the patronage of the Chief of Staff of Defence. What was also interesting was that Giannatini's speech wasn't only on the Revolutionary War, but on measures to be adopted to prevent the takeover of power by the Communists. This strategy, a counter-revolutionary war, advocated provoking a social tension to demonstrate the danger of the left, danger that could be demonstrated by carrying out attacks that could be ascribed to the left, and through infiltration of infiltrazioni. Guido Giannatini. Maletti, let us say, helped me a lot even when I was abroad. At a certain point he was obligated to abandon me. Those who work for intelligence know that this happens. Franco Freda. The life of everyone is manipulated by those with more power. Plato said that women are puppets in the hands of ideas. In my case, I accept that I have been a puppet in the hands of ideas, but not in the hands of men from secret services here or abroad. That is to say, that I have voluntarily fought my own war following the strategic design which came from my own ideas. That is all. Vincenzo Vinciquera. The massacre at Bologna came at the time of maximum concern on the part of the Italian, American and Allied Secret Services because of the electoral success of the Italian Communist Party.
The massacre at Bologna responded, as do all the other massacres, to the logic of a state who, no longer knowing how to confront a political enemy, resorts to extreme measures of violence attributable to extremists on the left or the right in order to justify their own actions. That is the only truth about Bologna. Licio Gelli, Venerable Master of the P2 Masonic Lodge. Io non credo che nessuno abbia messo la bomba a Bologna. Quello è stato un incidente di trasporto. There was no bomb at Bologna. It was a transport problem. Explosives were almost sold in the supermarkets. Somebody came from the east with three bundles. They were probably taking them somewhere else. They had stopped there. It was the 2nd of August, an extremely hot day. Someone threw a cigarette away, as happens. The people carrying the explosives were among the three bodies that were never identified. Federico D'Umberto D'Amato, head of the political police and ministry of interior, 1972-1974. Even under the communist or fascist regimes, which are usually the strongest when it comes to police powers, it's not easy to uncover who's behind the bombing. It's one of the vilest crimes possible and one of the easiest to commit. Like a bomb, and you leave. It's as simple as that. There is no evidence left because the explosion destroys everything. You never find anything afterwards. The attacks could have been carried out by anyone and everyone. There is no evidence that the Americans paid the terrorists or those who ordered the bombings. But secret CIA documents do reveal a pattern of payments to people connected with the Italian secret services, some of whom knew nothing at all about Gladio's role in bombings and kidnappings. Oswald Lewinter. There's a MIBS document which lists people and the impo their importance and what they received monthly. For instance, a fellow named Guido Giannettini, on a scale of he was a five and he only received thousand dollars a month now Tino Rauti was a two he received four thousand a month Sarah Valley was a one and got six thousand a month Alavena was a one he got five thousand Michelli was the one who got five thousand a month Tomato uh, was a one who was paid out of an embassy fund. Couchy was a five. He was paid directly by uh, Licio Jelly. third and final part of the trilogy is entitled The Foot Soldiers.
Thirty years of innocence and peace in Belgium were shattered in the early 1980s. Citizens with no expectations of violence were murdered while shopping. No one knew who, no one knew why. Some suspected that right-wing elements in the secret services had penetrated left-wing groups and had even killed their own police to deflect attention from themselves. The suspicion was never proven, but nor did it ever go away. We hear an extract from a U.S. intelligence field manual. Top secret. There may be times when host country governments show passivity or indecision in the face of communist subversion. U.S. Army intelligence must have the means of launching special operations which will convince host country governments and public opinion of the reality of the insurgent danger. U.S. Army intelligence should seek to penetrate the insurgency by means of agents on special assignment with the task of forming special action groups among the most radical elements of the insurgency. William Colby, director of the CIA, 1973-76. to I never heard such a thing, frankly. I don't know the origin of the statement, but you can find any statement in any country. I mean, you can find jackass statements anywhere. And I suspect it is an authentic document. I don't, I don't doubt it. I never saw it, but uh, it's the kind of... Uh, uh, special forces military operations that are uh, described uh, on the other hand uh, you've got to recall that the defense department and the president uh, don't uh, initiate any of those uh, uh, orders uh, uh, until there is an appropriate occasion Oswald Lewinter this is supplement B of field manual uh, 3132 it's 12 pages long it's not a hell of a big thing, but if it's not authentic, then you, you need to ask somebody what, what, what is it doing in the classified manual section of um, most field manual libraries. Licio Gelli, head of the P2 Masonic Lodge. The document was given to me by a friend in the CIA. Before entering a session, he said, read this when you have time. Michael Ledeen, State Department consultant in Italy, shakes his head. The field manual is an old forgery designed to show that there's some kind of accusing the United States basically of what the Soviet Union was doing in Italy, which was creating a, a, a secret underground paramilitary organization capable of acting to subvert Italian democracy. Lucien Dazlier, former Belgian para-commander. I'm from the north of the province of Luxembourg. At the time, I was manager of a bank as well as an ex-para commando. One day, some people came to my house and asked for my help with some special maneuvers in coordination with the American special forces. The Belgian commandos were told to recover American paratroopers. After this operation, they were to go to predetermined spots and attack barracks belonging to the gendarmerie. I had with me the supplies, the weapons, and the radio transmitter for coordinating it all. Rene Hacha, journalist. Un dimanche matin, nous avons appris dans dans les journaux à la radio. We read in the papers about an attack on a military camp at the Chasseurs Ardennes here in Belgium. I went there along with other journalists. 
They had cut the fences, attacked the armory, wounded the guard and left with a certain number of weapons. I was able to get into the camp because I knew some people there. Inside I saw foreign military personnel, notably Americans. Et à l'intérieur du camp, je me suis aperçu qu'il y avait des militaires étrangers, notamment des Américains. Lucien Dazler, former Belgian para-commander. Quelques jours avant, il y avait eu des barbures, c'est-à-dire que les Américains... There had been trouble a few days before. The Americans had gone too far. These were people in their 40s, officers, tough guys. They took the game too far. They attacked the barracks before. They had even thrown a grenade near the Attorney General's office. The civilian authorities reacted, saying this was too much. It was then that the planned attack on Bielsaal barracks was cancelled. The day of the attack, we were told that it had been cancelled. But the Americans asked me to drive them to the camp as a standby. The next morning, I went with my wife to Namur. I heard on the radio that the barracks had been attacked at midnight. I can't say what happened because I had left at 8 p.m. that evening. I wasn't supposed to stay. Rene Haka, journalist. For weeks and months, the explanation that civil authorities gave us was that the attack was the work of common criminals or of terrorists. It was several months before I received the telephone call. That's how I went to France and met Lucien Dislaire, who gave me his report and talked to me at length. He told me he had taken part in a secret manoeuvre which was to reproduce the operations of the resistance and of support for the resistance as it was done at the end of the war. Lucien Dazler the following day, the commander of the Vilsalm barracks called me and updated me on the operation. He told me to tell the Belgian commando that the guard wasn't dead, he was in hospital, seriously wounded. René Haka. The Saturday evening of the attack, his role had been to take a military team in plain clothes to the Vilsam camp. The plan was to attack that night. The American and Belgian authorities who were questioned ended up admitting, after months, that there had been an exercise. It admitted that certain attacks had taken place. I remember, for example, one attack on a military fuel depot in Bastogne, another attack on a police station at Neufchâteau. Gradually, the military admitted there had been certain attacks, but their last version of Vilsar was that an attack had been planned but had been cancelled at the last moment. 
Some of the arms stolen at Vilsam were found in a flat belonging to the Cellule Communiste Combattante. But journalists and observers continue to ask had the terrorists been at Vilsam? Or were the guns planted in their apartment to make it look that way? Is that the editor's office? We want to tell you that we have left a message for you at 26 Avenue General de Gaulle in the entrance under the letterbox. In cases where the infiltration of agents into the insurgent leadership has not been effectively implemented, it may help to utilize ultra-leftist organizations. Senator Roger Lallemand, head of the Belgian parliamentary inquiry into Gladio. In the 1980s, a kind of media terrorism developed here, which used the media to shock the public and foreign circles. This terrorism could have two sources, the extreme left or right, or it could be foreign governments and foreign intelligence services. It is a terrorism which aims to destabilize democratic society. Minister Guy Cohen, Belgian Defence Minister, 1988 to 1991. In Belgium, there have been a number of unexplained events. An armed band committed numerous murders in the mid-80s. And we still know nothing about this. It has been suggested that their aim was to destabilize the democratic regime in our country. We see the bloody aftermath of the shootings in Belgium. He saw three masked men coming out of the rear. He said to his child, drop down, there they are. One bystander who tried to flee was shot at. Seven or eight bullets through his car and a shot grazing behind the car. One woman whose face was covered in blood was screaming something about her child. I don't know exactly what. The blacked out face of Marcia Lecker, Belgian gendarme, 1972 to 1984. My name is Marcia I used to be with the Belgian gendarmerie. I left Belgium in August 84 after precise death threat against my kids. In beginning of December 1983, I did go personally to the BSR, who were doing the investigation about the killing. I was surprised that uh, no arrest had been made, and I knew that I did report myself what was going on, and we were expecting killing like that. Uh, random killing, going to supermarket and killing people, and even kids. I believe they killed about 30 people. So I told the gentleman I met, uh, Lice, member of the gendarmerie or the army, uh, there, involved in that. His answer was, uh, shut up, you know, we know. Uh, take care of your own business, get out of here. What they were saying, the democracy was going away, the leftists were empowered, socialists, and all these things, they wanted more power. 
This crime troubled the public as it didn't seem to be justified by the sole consideration of profit for what could have been grabbed from the supermarkets. The gratuitous killing of people could have been a political motive. One recalls what happened in Italy at the station in Bologna, where 80 innocent people died. We think a political organisation was behind the Brandt-Wallon killings. Jean-Claude Garraud edited and owned the Belgian magazine Pool. In its pages, he ran a series of exposés of Belgian neo-fascist groups. Jean-Claude Garraud. The Front de la Jeunesse had existed for several years. It was new, but its members had been in other political groups before that. Francis Tossogne, head of Front de la Jeunesse. The Front de la Jeunesse was born in 1974 and existed until the 80s. At times it was a political group, at times militant, extreme right-wing, but essentially it was a militant youth movement. Jean-Claude Garraud. There was Jean Europe, Front de la Jeunesse. The names of these organizations change, but you often find the same people in these groups. Dossogne was in several of them. Francis Dossogne, head of Front de la Jeunesse. The Front de la Jeunesse carried out actions which upset things. It put many things into question, things which were well established. The Front upset things so much they wanted to destroy it. Jean-Claude Garraud. One suspects that there was a nerve centre taking the decisions, and this was surrounded by concentric circles to which tasks were delegated. Naturally, there was a problem. In that as you moved away from the centre, errors were committed. The Ardennes affair was a functional error. In the training of their groups for active intervention paramilitary groups, they had to form and train elements of the extreme right, ex-para-commandos, ex-militaries, gendarmes, militant rightists. Francis Tossogne head of Front de la Jeunesse. The Front were condemned for their camps. In fact, what we did was just what scouts do. What some companies do in incentive courses goes much further. Jean-Claude Garraud. One of the Flemish organizations, VMO, Vlaams Militant den Older, had a combat section which they wanted to train. They did this in a camp in the Ardennes. This kind of exercise involves the firing of machine guns, the throwing of grenades. This makes noise and attracts attention. We were told that this camp was taking place. We knew about it and organized the necessary photographic equipment 
de l'action. In order puis, to photograph part of the action. Cette action dans un contexte très Then we revealed délibéré. their activities in a very deliberate fashion. We said, we believe there is a VMO military training camp in the Ardennes where they use machine guns and Molotov cocktails. Francis Tossogne. The France didn't have military camps, but camping which took place on private land. But rumors circulated. The front de la jeunesse was authorized by the military authorities. Everything was above board. Jean-Claude Garot. With friends from the radio and TV, we interviewed General Borir. At that time, he was number one in the hierarchy of the gendarmerie. In the interview, he said, that never happened. En interview, télévision et radio a dit, the same day, the examining judge intervened. Le jour même, le juge But where? Intervenait, mais Here. Intervenait où ça? They searched the premises and made a statement. Jean-Claude Garot has lied. He has fabricated uniforms, un photos and arms. Il a fabriqué avec It des uniformes, des photos et des armes, toute une mascarade. Francis Tossogne. Head of Front de la Jeunesse. Group G was a section of the Front in the Gendarmerie. As gendarmes, they didn't want to be mixed up with the rest and risk being involved during demonstrations and so on. This dozen young gendarmes asked to be put in a separate section. Marshal Lecoeur. Belgian gendarme, 1972 to 1984. Mr. Francis Dossoin was the contact. I've been recruited by another member of the gendarmerie from headquarters to become a member of that group. Only police officer was inside that group. It was called the group G, G for gendarmerie. Francis Dossoin, head of Front de la Jeunesse. Lecoeur was part of Group G. He was one of its first members. He was so much part of Group G that he later informed the chief of staff of the gendarmerie of its existence. And uh, I did witness there Mr. Mievis, he's the one who did recruit me, giving to Mr. Dossoin a confidential file from headquarters. The people they did recruit were people like myself, people from headquarters, people who have access to certain knowledge inside the gendarmerie. So I believe officers in headquarters were involved also. Jean-Claude Garot. Paul Latinus a été découvert euh, alors qu'il était inconnu. I discovered Paul Latinus by chance during an interview. Rapidement, j'ai mené une enquête. I soon began an inquiry which showed how Latinus had been implanted in the front de la jeunesse with a specific task to teach front de la jeunesse how to carry out violent acts, attacks on immigrant Arab cafes, how to organize military training camps, how to carry out surveillance. Michel Libert, Westland New Post, 1978 to 1981. The structure of Westland New Post 
It's always the same principle. You have a chief of staff at the top. Under him, two management groups which provide financial help or assistance from the respective authorities. The top people are unknown. They're only known as the key people. In Europe, there were nine key people and one was Paul Latlas. The world anti-communist couldn't act in all parts of the world. And when they wanted something done, who would they use? Comrades of the same system. Europe is divided into eight with a center. This central group includes Belgium, West Germany, Northern France and Holland. René Hacha, journalist. Latinus was charged with forming an army on the model of the SS. They had a secret service, a security service in the group. Each member has a double name, a code name, usually in German. The members didn't know the others. They were grouped together according to age. Each recruit didn't know the other team members. Celui qui était recruté ne connaissait pas les autres membres de l'équipe. Michel Libert, Westland New Post, 1978 to 1981. Why the universities? Often one has need for scientific help, for a lab. Just as in a judicial office, there's always a lab. Whose is the hair? We didn't go that far, but we did use chemicals. A request for explosives would go to the university branch. We're not talking about TNT, but of much more specialized products. René Hacha, journalist. Je reprends contact avec Paul Latinus. I contacted Latinus again. We met in a restaurant and talked all night. Certain authorities, he wouldn't say which at first, had given him the job of creating a secret resistance group in Belgium. It was to fight Soviet penetration and stop certain Belgian authorities from collaborating with the Soviets. Michel Libert, Westland New Post. When an operation was to be carried out, Latins was given the job. To get us to do it, he had to have an aid in case of any problems. You can't send younger members into the field. Within two hours, they would have a bullet between the eyes. There were always risks. They could be stopped by the local police for an identity check. The police turn up like a hair in the soup. One can't say, we're here in such and such a mission. Doing what? Can't tell you. Click the handcuffs and that's it. René Hacha, journalist.
One member of this group was an inspector from the Secret Service. He later admitted that he was an infiltrator. But he said he had only given courses in surveillance in an apartment belonging to one of their members. This inspector wore a balaclava and he was accompanied by a guard. His code name was Colonel. He had a WNP membership card with a secret code of the organization. Michel Libert, Westland New Post. Among the technicians who gave courses, there was a member of the EEC security services called Robert. Another member always wore a balaclava during his lectures. He turned out to be an inspector from the secret services. When asking about these courses, we wondered if he had organized exercises after the courses. The inspector ended up admitting that he had, in Brussels in May 1984, he had told the young members that the terrorist Carlos's mistress lived there and asked them to trail her day and night. Michel Libert. These people gave courses in recruitment, surveillance and arms. Robert gave courses on explosives, on arms and shooting, and in how to kill without leaving a trace. René Hacker. When we met up in the following days and weeks, I asked Latinus who had asked him to build the group. He mentioned the state security. We have verified that he did work for the state security. He talked to foreign military authorities. I pushed him and eventually he said American military secret services. Michel Libert. He met people from the embassy, but I never met them like we met now. It wasn't my domain. His was, you might say, the domain of diplomacy, that is, relations with foreign authorities. Our sole concern was with action. We knew we were protected by all possible authorities, depending on the type of mission. Was he paid by the Americans? I can't say, but he was in contact with them. We now know of another exercise here in January and February 1984. These young men were told of a couple living in Brussels who were probably KGB agents and had to be watched. Then, when we heard that this exercise had taken place, we remembered that in February 1982, this couple had been found strangled and shot. Michel Libert. One received orders. We can go back to, say, 82. From 82 to 85, there were projects. You, Mr. Liebert, 
know nothing about why we're doing this, nothing at all. All we ask is that your group, with cover from the gendarmerie, with cover from security, carry out a job, target the supermarkets. Where are they? What kind of locks are there? What sort of protection do they have that could interfere with our operation? Does the store manager lock up? Or do they use an outside security company? We carried out the orders and sent in our reports. Hours of opening and closing, everything you want to know about a supermarket. What was this for? This was one among hundreds of missions. Something that had to be done. But the use it was all put to, that's the big question. And the screen shows a Belgian supermarket through the eyes of a carnival mask. Where were the victims killed? Some in the car park, some inside. Before, during or after the hold-up? Before, during and after. I simply saw someone with one of those carnival masks and a gun. Ridiculous. It couldn't have been more than 200. They weren't after the money? I can't say. He had a sort of carnival mask. He had a big gun. I don't know of what kind. And when I moved forward, he gestured to me. Naturally, I didn't ask for my bill. I went towards the rear of the store. Martial Lequeux, Belgian gendarme. The guns they were using were coming from far away. And that's exactly what we, we did plan. It's to organize gangs and, and groups like that and let them go by themselves, but make sure they will survive and make sure to, to supply them and, you know, just to create a climate of terror in a country. After four years of random killings and hold-ups, the Brabant Wallon killers vanished. Then, after a year of silence, a phone call led police to a sack in a Belgian canal. In it, they found the weapons used in the killings and much of the loot. The caller never identified himself. They have two, two plans. Once, the first one was to uh, organize gangs to do hold-up hostage, you know, killing. The second one was to organize the so-called left movement uh, who will do a terrorist attempt just to make believe, make the population believe that uh, these ter terrorist attempts were done by the left. In Belgium, as in the rest of Europe, the 1968 student revolts in Paris, Brussels, Frankfurt and Milan led to the emergence of armed leftist action groups. The Red Army Faction, Bader-Meinhof, Action Direct and the Red Brigades, Le Brigate Rosse. On March the 16th, 1978, the Italian left-wing terrorists kidnapped the former Italian Prime Minister, Mr. Aldo Moro. On that day, the Italian Parliament was about to debate the inclusion of the Italian Communist Party in a government of national unity for the first time since 1948. 
Aldo Moro had long believed that this was the only solution for political stability in Italy. Oswald Lewinter. Rigato Rosso was penetrated. Bader Meinhof was penetrated. Action Direct. Uh, various of these uh, left-wing terrorist organizations were, uh, you know, were penetrated and, uh, and co-opted. Federico Umberto D'Amato, head of the Italian Political Police, Ministry of the Interior, 1972-74. The Red Brigades were infiltrated with some difficulty because they were a closed organization, very efficient, but there were some important and very successful infiltrators. Vincenzo Vinciguela. The Amato started in the secret services of the police forces and the Ministry of the Interior in the fascist era and in the ensuing years. His father was chief of police and was employed by the police in purging committee in 1945 and 46. In his work, he always maintained contact with the secret We did a lot in the field of security, especially on a European scale, to the French events or the revolution of 68. There was a real threat posed by the subversive elements in Europe. So I proposed we set up a permanent committee a European committee, one which even Switzerland joined. Indeed, this committee is even called the Bern Club. Vincenzo Vinciguela. The Amato was founder of the Bern Club. It was his idea. It includes all the secret services of Europe and America, the first appearance of this group, and the internal political battle is seen in 1972 with the so-called Operation Chinese Poster. They gave an extreme right-wing group, La Vanguardia Nazionale, the task of putting Maoist posters. This was, in effect, an attempt to create the ultra-left, even more extreme than the Communist Party. The Byrne Club drew this up at a meeting of the Secret Services of Europe, America, and China. Federico Umberto D'Amato. The club still exists and brings together the Secret Services of Europe together. Every time they meet, because I was the founder, they send me a greeting to the Godfather. That's me. Vincenzo Vinciguela. The Red Brigades were well known and infiltrated. All the members of the Red Brigades were well known to the police and the Secret Services. Alberto Franceschini, founding member of the Red Brigades. 
Io e altri compagni ci trasferimmo a Roma. A few other comrades and myself went to Rome to stage an assault. Un salto, noi dicevamo, politico e militare. After our kidnapping of the judge, the plan was to kidnap the politician. Il magistrato, il nostro obiettivo era il sequestro di un uomo politico. We decided that there would be Andreotti. Abbiamo individuato appunto questa persona in Andreotti. Non arrivammo nemmeno a preparare un piano reale di sequestro io fui arrestato, io e Renato fumo arrestati tutti. Questo nostro interno, fratello Mitra, era ormai un anno che aveva con noi, con la nostra organizzazione. Avrebbe avuto l'opportunità di infiltrarsi ancora di più nostra, perché dopo quell'appuntamento che lui aveva con Renato lui a questo punto avrebbe avuto l'opportunità di conoscere la cosa che può colpire è che proprio Franceschini and Renato Curcio, the founders of the Red Brigades, were in prison when Aldo Moro was kidnapped. Oswald Le Winter. Scores of reports, classified documents coming out of the Rome station which, which absolutely verified that, you know, that the Red Brigades had been penetrated, that the planning staff of the Red Brigades was taking its orders from uh, Santo Vito. General Santo Vito was then head of SISMI, the Italian Secret Service. Gianni Ciprani, journalist. Valerio Morucci, il brigatista che fu arrestato. Valerio Morucci of the Red Brigades, arrested after the murder of Moro, had on him a diary full of documents and phone numbers and highly confidential notes. Amongst those were details of General Giovanni Romeo, head of D department in SID, the Secret Services. The most important office during the kidnapping of Aldo Moro. Bear in mind it was General Romeo who last year declared to the commission dealing with the massacres that he had agents inside the Red Brigades. Senator Libero Gualtieri, head of the Italian parliamentary inquiry into Gladio. We don't know whether we have identified everyone involved in the shooting of Moro. It has been said that there was an officer of the secret services in the area. When interrogated, he said he had legitimate reasons to be in the vicinity. Gianni Ciprani, journalist. Guglielmi was first mentioned after Per Luigi Ravasio's confession, a carabinieri who had worked for military intelligence, SISMI. Ravasio, when he was a SISMI agent, had been trained at the Gladio base at Capo Maraggio. 
He said that at the University of Rome the services had an informer who warned them that Moro would be kidnapped on 16th March 1978. He also said that Colonel Guglielmi had been in Via Fani. He had witnessed the kidnapping but had been unable to prevent it. Ravazio also said that Guglielmi was dead, but he was not. He was being interrogated by a Roman judge and had partially confirmed Ravazio's story by saying he was in the area but had no part in the kidnapping. What stands out in Guglielmi's statements is the fact that he said that he went to his father's house for lunch, but it all happened at nine in the morning, a little early for lunch. He was in the intelligence bureau of the Ministry of the Interior. Evidence implies he was also a trainer at the Gladio base at Capomarraggio. Aldo Moro's widow. Either my husband or someone else told me perhaps from 1975 onwards or perhaps a little after 1975, I can't be more precise that he had been told that this attempt of his to bring all the political forces together in the government for the good of the country was something that was not appreciated by certain groups of people. And if he persisted in his efforts to follow up these ideas of his, if he insisted on going ahead with his political plan, he would pay dearly for it. Alberto Franceschini, founding member of the Red Brigades. My reaction, we all can say, was one of amazement. I was stunned, first of all because of who Moro was and because of his importance. I never thought my comrades outside had the capacity to carry out a conflict military operation such as the kidnapping of the president of the Christian Social Democrats. In quel in the space of a few years, he was suddenly capable of carrying out such a militarily complex act as the kidnapping of Moro, and this in the centre of Rome. 49 of the 92 bullets that were found in the Via Fanny were covered in a special coating and had no data manufactured. The first investigation referred to the bullets used by special forces, not by conventional Hello? Who is this talking? Irrespective of the fact that your phone is tapped, you are to take a final message to the Moro family. Who is this talking? 
the Red Brigades. Tell them that they will find the body of Aldo Moro in Via Cautani, okay? In Via Cautani. Yes. There they will find a red Renault 4. The first numbers on the plate are N5. I find them myself. No, you must go there. I can't. Can't? You have to. Please, no. I cannot accept the disgraceful and ungrateful decision taken by the Christian Democratic Party. I will not absolve, nor will I exonerate anyone of their responsibility. No political or moral reason impels me to do so. My own cry joins that of my family, themselves wounded to death, and I hope that their cry will be heard independently. I don't believe the Christian Democratic Party has solved their problems by liquidating morrow. Because of this clear incompatibility, I request that at my funeral there be no one present representing the Italian state and no one from the political party. I ask to be accompanied by the few people who have really wished me well, those therefore that are worthy of accompanying me with their prayers and with their love. Kind regards, Aldo Moro. Francesco Cossiga, President of Italy, 1985 to 1992. Aldo Moro's death weighs heavily on the Christian Democrats, as does the decision I came to, which turned my hair white to practically sacrifice Moro to save the Republic. Gianni Ciprani, journalist. In the Red Brigade's printing offices, found directly after Moro's death, a printing press was found which had belonged to the secret services, the RUS section, the unit of special recruitment, the section in the secret services that recruited the gladiators. Michael the Dean, State Department consultant. Italy. By the time that Moro's body was discovered, the Italians had worked themselves into such a frenzy and such a terror about the Red Brigades that I think if the Red Brigades had appreciated just how frightened the Italian government was at that point that they might actually have accomplished something, I mean accomplished something political. The goal of terrorism, after all, is to terrorize. They had succeeded in terrorizing. They had terrorized the political class of Italy. Vincenzo Vinciguera. When I talk about ideals, I mean the pursuit of truth, not ideology. I believe that the fascism was a historical experience which has simply faded. So the pursuit of truth doesn't just refer to the past, but also to the present and the future. These ideals prevent me from repenting my deeds. Because what I did was something I thought was right. I profoundly believed in what I was doing and still do. So I can't disassociate myself from the past. 
It wasn't the truth that the state denies. And I can't even complete accepting the rewards the state gives to those who lie and are obedient. Because thousands of people have been deceived, jailed, and killed. Alberto Franceschini, founding member of the Red Brigades. Personalmente vorrei sapere anche perché mi sto facendo 17 anni di carcere. Why am I spending 17 years in jail? I want to know what or who has used me. Può aver usato la mia vita. When I thought I was going in one direction, someone was moving me in the opposite direction. Senza che io me ne rendessi conto, mi faceva procedere in un'altra direzione. Io vorrei saperlo. Federico Umberto D'Amato, head of the political police, Italian Ministry of the Interior, 1972-74. Questi pupazzi, questi che i francesi chiamano automat. These puppets, as the French call them, automats. We call them automi, from the word automatos, that is, automated puppets. It is the attempt to give life to something that is lifeless, but whose movements and gestures are really quite charming. Here is a puppet which sums up what we have been talking about. This is the puppet of politics. This is the conjurer, the jongleur. And the film ends with Federico Umberto D'Amato watching the musical box. The puppet moves as if by itself and not only that, it's carrying out a magic trick. Now many thanks to everybody who lent their voice to that film adaptation, definitely the most ambitious film adaptation we have yet undertaken on Unwelcome Guests, and I think one of the most worthy of films. Hearty congratulations to the late Alan Frankovich, bears repeating that he died in extremely suspicious circumstances, supposedly of a heart attack while going through customs at an international airport in the US. Now, I didn't have long to expound on the surveillance terrorism complex, the nexus between the two, but with all these false flag terrorist attacks going on, it becomes essential to control the flow of information. That means you can't carry out these false flag terrorist attacks without the surveillance industrial complex on board. Paul Latinus, Wikipedia, reports suffered a suicide. Uh, It doesn't even say it's an alleged suicide last time I checked. Somebody was concerned enough, we don't know who, to compile a 698-page investigation, and that has found its way onto WikiLeaks. If you're interested in reviewing Wikipedia and constructing alternative hypotheses, citing relevant information, which is still available on the web, then I'd invite you to join at wikispooks.com, an alternative encyclopedia for those who have had enough of the official narrative behoven to government and authority reports. 
and those who would rather trust their eyes and ears. This and all previous episodes of Unwelcome Guests are available for download from MP3 Archive at unwelcomeguests.net slash archive. Our theme tune is by Billy Bragg and Wilco, with lyrics by Woody Guthrie.